All right, so welcome everyone. Um, today we're starting the first part of our Advent series. And as you've heard, I'm projecting. So can you all hear me all right? Yeah. Yes? Yeah. All right, we'll see how long this lasts. <laughs> so yeah, as you heard, we've decided to pick our favorite Christmas carols this year for the Advent series and unpack those. Um, and something the music team probably knows about me, but maybe not the rest of you, is that I'm a bit of a Grinch at Christmas time, especially Christmas carols. Can't stand them. <laughs> if it's the happier they are, the worse they are. If you've got you know bells and chimes and it, throw a, a kids choir in there, so yeah, picking my favourite Christmas carol. Um, <laughs> I can't blame you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's no surprise that the song that I chose was "O Come, O Come, Emmanuel." Uh, so musically, at least, it doesn't sound very happy, does it? Uh, pretty grim, and it's in that you know minor key, nice and dreary. Um, you might have noticed the words were a little bit different to perhaps what you're used to and what we usually sing at church. Um, so I asked Graham if we could play. These are the original English translations, so as old as they go in our language at least. Um, and also, I think you guys did a great job. It's some very clunky words and you know, it feels like it shouldn't work in a song, but you did very well. So, um, so yeah, the, the, one of the reasons that I'm not so much a big fan of Christmas carols, apart from, like I said, the, the happy, clappy music, that kind of thing, um, is I think that they always seemed a little bit out of place. Um, at least, looking back, I think that's how I feel. Um, my memory of growing up in church was a little bit patchy, but the obvious thing that you remember as a kid is you know, Christmas and Easter, and if that's what you know about Christianity, that's, you know, that's what you know. Um, but it wasn't probably until my early 20s or so that Christmas started to make a bit more sense and understanding why it was a big deal. Um, so the Christmas story to me always seemed pretty random. It's about a story about this baby that's born in a manger, um, and apparently his mum was a virgin, apparently some angels said he was going to be the king, and some wise men came from far away and agreed, and then turns out there's a twist and he's actually God coming in human form to save us. And it's written from some people 2,000 years ago, and apparently we should believe them. So to me, and even if all that is true, it sort of seems like, well, what's, what's the big deal? It doesn't prove that Jesus is anything special. The Christmas story on its own is just a weird story that you can take at face value or you can't. It doesn't really mean anything on its own. Um, and I'm one of those annoying people that when I'm watching a documentary or I hear someone speak and you know, sharing their opinion or that something they believe, my default isn't to nod and agree. My default is to look for where they're wrong. I, I criticise it. I'm really annoying. I, I argue in my own head saying, shut up, Michael, just listen to them and hear them out. But that's me. I'm always looking to, why should I believe you? So if you're one of those sceptical people like me, um, lucky you don't need to worry and there is still hope for us. Um, and so the Christmas story on its own is weird, um, but it has a lot of meaning and makes a heck of a lot of sense when you look at why people back then thought it was a big deal. So when it's combined with the longing of God's people for thousands of years before it, that's a different story. When it's combined with fulfilling the prayers and the longings of the people and also the promises of God that have been told for thousands of years, that's something that's impressive and that's something that makes that random Christmas story demand a bit more serious attention. So hearing that story of baby Jesus born in a manger, claimed to be king and claimed to be God, you can listen to that and just sort of shrug it off and think, whatever. But when you've got all these different authors spanning hundreds of years 
who tell you all these different things about this guy who's coming one day who will save us. Telling you things like he'll be from the line of David, that he'll be born in Bethlehem, that he'll be rejected, that he'll suffer, that he'll be killed, and that God would raise him from the dead. So when you get a big combination of details like that, all coming from different people who didn't know each other, telling you about this guy who one day is going to come, and then someone comes and fulfills that, I feel like you can't really shrug that off. It, it demands a bit more attention. And that's something that I really love about this song, how it focuses on the longing and on why the birth of Jesus is a big deal. So it's a song that summarizes the cries of God's people for thousands of years before Jesus was born. And a little bit about the history of this song. Um, I was just looking into where it came from and how we got this version that, we've, that we sing now. Um, and it's a bit of a mashup of different sources. So the song was originally written in Latin, and it was part of a liturgy called the O Antiphons. And this is something that was sung or chanted in the seven days leading up to Christmas for, for hundreds of years in the Roman Catholic churches and Eastern Orthodox churches. Um, and people aren't really too sure when it was originally written or who wrote it. The earliest sources, um, someone references, talks about these verses as early as 500 AD. So it was around sometime before then in, in its Latin form. And it was a tradition, a solid tradition for hundreds of years in a lot of the churches to recite these every year. And again, we're not too sure what the um, original tune or the melody was that they sang in Latin. Um, the one that we're most familiar with that we sang today, that wasn't in effect until 1851, and that was when the words were translated from Latin to English. Um, this was from a guy called John Mason Neal. He's the name who's on the bottom of our CCLI for our words up there. Um, this guy had an interesting life. Um, he co-founded a society called the Society of St. Margaret, which was uh, an order of women in the Church of England who were dedicated to helping the sick. And he also published a book called Hymns of the Eastern Churches, and that's where this song came from, where he translated poems and hymns and liturgy that the church used that were in Latin and Greek, Russian and Syrian texts. So it's a really interesting guy. He brought all these sort of ancient traditions to the Western church. So this is one of the many songs that were in his, his hymns book that he translated to English. And the tune that he first documented in this book, he attributes, he writes, this music came from a French missal, which is a liturgical book, so a French liturgy book in the National Library, Lisbon. I don't know if any of you guys have done like a uni paper recently, but you would fail your referencing if you said... I got this source from a book in the library. That, that's literally what he said. So for 100 years, no one, no one knew where this music originally came from, and it wasn't until about 110 years later that someone found it was a book in a French library, and they found where that tune was originally written. And it was originally used as a procession song for a funeral, so people would chant it while they're carrying a dead body in. Yeah, it's quite fitting, right? <laughs> so I said I was a bit of a Grinch. Um, <laughs> I didn't know this coming into it, but yeah, my favourite Christmas carol, the music was once a funeral procession hymn. So, hey. <laughs> so yeah, we could spend forever digging into the words behind this song, um, or even just the title alone, there's a lot going on there. But the main things I want to focus on is actually the first line of each verse. Um, and these are the different titles or the different names that the audience is calling to. So to start with, in verse 1, we've got O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, the title of the song. I just want to read from Matthew chapter 1 here. 
we have now the birth of Jesus Christ was on the wise when his mother Mary was spouse to Joseph I've done the easier version up there let's see if you can still hear me while I'm facing away from you they came together she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit because Joseph her husband was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace he had in mind to divorce her quietly but after he had considered this an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said Joseph son of David do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel which means God with us so Matthew there is referencing something that was written 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And he's saying, remember that thing that the prophet Isaiah said would happen? He's saying this is it, that a virgin would give birth to one who would be called Emmanuel, who would be called God with us. So that was a, a title or a name that the people of Israel used to refer to the Messiah before he had arrived. The one who that they were waiting for would come and save them and make everything right between man and God. So in the Old Testament, being in the presence of God was a little bit of a challenge. Um, as Graham and Sarah both mentioned the last few weeks about all the extra stuff that had to go on for them to enter the Holy of Holies and the bells and the ropes to make sure they were okay. Um, but what, what they're longing for here and what they've always longed for is something different. Um, Israel always knew that God was with them in, in one sense, but the idea that God was dwelling with was something they longed for as a future, future hope, that they would be his people and he would be their God. This promise that God would be with them, that God would not be afar off and that he wouldn't be distant, that he would be here as a comforter. And again, we could do a whole sermon just on that title of God with us. Um, But I want to look a little bit on the structure of the song. So it it follows a pretty similar structure in each verse. So the first line is always the title or who it's addressed to. In this case, Emmanuel, God with us. Then it's often followed by a request. In this case, Ransom captive Israel, followed by their current situation, which is usually the depressing bit that mourns in lonely, lonely exile here. And then often followed by a little bit of hope until the Son of God appear, implying that he will appear, and when he does, it will be the end to the mourning and the captivity. And it always ends with these same lines the call for praise, to rejoice and rejoice that God will come through for us. Even though it doesn't look like it right now, not in the current situation, but rejoicing knowing that he will come to them. And we'll see this pattern gets repeated. So rather than focusing on what happened when Jesus was born, this song is written kind of in the past tense. It's a song about waiting for promises before they get here, waiting for good things in a place of darkness and having hope for the future despite the current situation and how things look. So as we have a look at the second verse, it starts with the title again, who they're calling to. They're calling to the Rod of Jesse. And that's a bit of a weird title. Um, And on the surface, it doesn't make all that much sense. And this is one of my favourite things about the Bible. When you come across weird stuff like this, you can either sort of shrug it off and keep moving, or if you dig into it and try and make sense of it, you can find some pretty cool nuggets. Um, And yeah, it's quite mind-blowing some of the stuff you, you find. 
So this comes from, again, the prophet Isaiah, where he says, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. A branch shall grow out of its roots, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest on them, shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding and the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. So that that label, the rod of Jesse, uh, that's also found in Jeremiah as well. And it was another title for the Messiah, for the one that they were expecting and waiting for. One day for that person who will come and make things good for them. So again, this is another prophecy that we have written hundreds of years before Jesus shows up. And again, I love my my sceptical brain that thinks surely they arranged this and it was actually written after Jesus. But yeah, the the scroll of Isaiah is dated back to, I think, 700 years before Christ. And they've dug up things and it was before it was converted to Greek. It's written in ancient Hebrew. You can't argue it. It can't be done. So yeah, I find that quite cool. So Jesse, he was the father of King David, and it was promised that this Messiah would come from the line of David, and that also the off, David's offspring would rule from the throne in Jerusalem. The word for rod is like a shoot, or a small branch, um, but this branch isn't growing out of the trunk of the tree. Isaiah says it's coming out of the roots. So that's the picture we have here of a, a cut-off stem or tree trunk. It's a stump with a new shoot that's growing out of it saying that the family tree of Jesse would be chopped down to a stump and it would look hopeless that the Messiah would come. After all, it was already promised that he would come from the line of David and that there would be rulers from his line on the throne. But the people of Israel were taken into captivity, the temple was destroyed, and there was no one on the throne for hundreds of years. So all of of those promises that someone would one day come and rule the earth from David's throne are looking pretty hopeless. And that's the situation that this, this song and this calling is sung from. But the picture here is that God would be faithful and out of that stump would come one who would be the saviour of the world. And if you read those boring genealogies at the start of Matthew and Luke, you'll see how they trace the lineage back through to David. It's a picture of God's faithfulness, of God coming through when things look hopeless. A couple of years ago, we had a big tree behind our garage that we cut down. It was winter time when we cut it down, so we chopped it down to a stump in the ground, cleared it all away, thought that was the end of it, ticked it off the box. And it was somewhere where you wouldn't see it walking past. You had to actually intentionally go find this tree stump. So it wasn't until a few months later and the spring hit. What do you reckon happened? (laughs) He was not dead. (laughs) So yeah, they're pretty stubborn things. And I liked what you said, Louise, something about the persistence of God or that he was, what did he whisper into the air? Relentless, that's the word. Same with tree stumps. But that's the picture when we've given up hope that you think There's no hope that those promises can't come through, that there are shoots that will come one day. And it took 700 years of people thinking, that's a dead tree stump, this isn't going to happen. So yeah, it's a pretty cool picture to see in hindsight. And back to the rest of that verse in the structure. So again, we see the title, who they're calling to, the rod of Jesse. The situation, to save his people from Satan's tyranny. The, The request... Um, save us from the depths of hell 
and the hope being to give them victory over the grave. And again, that same praise, rejoice, rejoice, that God will come to us. And some of those things, like save your people from the depths of hell and give them victory over the grave, it's um, quite interesting how that comes in here. That's not, that wasn't really something that Israel expected their Messiah to do. It was something that they still expected would happen, but that was God's job, not, not the human Messiah that was to come. So this is sort of the first hint in the song at tying together the Messiah that they're waiting for and the divinity of that Messiah being God himself. So next verse, another weird title. Come thou dayspring from on high. Dayspring meaning new light or dawn, but the dayspring from on high. It's new light from God. And Jesus was commonly referred to as the light of the world. And Luke chapter 1 says, Through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the dayspring from on high hath visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet to the way of peace. So Luke here referencing that Jesus came as the new light and and the new dawn to show us a new way to live. And John also writes a slightly different angle about how Jesus is the first light, saying that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So John expands that teaching that Jesus is the light of the world, that Jesus was there in the beginning, that day spring, that first light. Another hint at the eternal nature of the the Messiah, combining the the expectations of the human side of the Messiah and attributing these things that go beyond what you'd expect in a human. And this one, the request and the situation are kind of combined into one here. To cheer us by thy drawing nigh, disperse the gloomy clouds of night, and death's dark shadows put to flight. And still ending with that same praise, a call to rejoice that the day spring from on high will come to us. The next title that they're calling to is Come Thou Key of David. Another strange title that we find again in the book of Isaiah. Speaking of the Messiah, the one who has promised to come, he says, And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall, he shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. So a key was a symbol of authority, um, a bit like a mayor getting the keys to the city like they do in some places. Um, so having the key of David would give someone authority to rule David's domain of Jerusalem, the city of David, the kingdom of Israel. And this is linked a little bit to the previous prophecy, um, the rod of Jesse, the the shoot coming up from the line of Jesse. So not only that the Messiah would be from the line of David, and not that that he'd only be a descendant of David, that he would also rule on the throne. In the book of Kings, God says that he will establish David's royal throne over Israel forever. So applying this title to Jesus as the key of David is calling for this ruler that was promised to come. And again, you can see how um, people will have been looking at this dead tree stump that they've given up on for 700 years, hoping that, it would, that the shoot would come and the one coming from there, even though it's not looking like that is going to ever happen. 
Um, that, key, that phrase, the key of David, is also found in the book of Revelation. And it says that Jesus holds this key of David. And it shows here that he is the fulfillment, fulfillment of God's promise to have David's line on the throne forever. As that he is the promised Messiah and ruler of the new Jerusalem. Just kind of have to go all the way through. <laughs> Oh, right. So back to the structure of this one. So we've got the request. Open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high. In the situation to close the path of misery to misery. Again, rejoice, rejoice. The, king of da- the key of David, Emmanuel, the one that was promised, will come. And again, some of those things are going a bit beyond the job description of that expected Messiah. There are more hints at the divinity of Jesus. The first few verses have been a bit subtle, you know, attributing things that only God can do. You know, saying the, the day spring, the, the first light, asking him to save them from the depths of hell, to open wide our heavenly home, and even the title, you know, God with us. That's probably not actually that subtle when you put them all together. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? Um, but I like this last verse that makes it crystal clear that what, who they are calling for is God himself. O come, Adonai, Lord of might. So Adonai was, commonly, was the most commonly used title for God. And the ancient, the ancient Israelites didn't like to write the name, the word God or the name of God. And they didn't even like to say it. So Adonai was the, the most used alternative and I like the theology of this final verse. It combines the Messiah not just being human and not just being sent from God, but being God himself. And we read this in John chapter 8, where Jesus is having a conversation with some of the Jewish Pharisees. And they say to him, Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, who you claim is your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet fifty years old, they said to Jesus. And you have seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was... I was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. So I love that passage. Again, it's something we can miss, especially because often we read that and think it's just a clunky English translation and that phrase, before Abraham was born, I am. You can kind of just shrug it off as being a a weird translation and keep reading. But what he's doing there is he's applying the name that God revealed to Moses in the burning bush and applying that to himself. Back in Exodus where God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So that's the title that goes way back. And that link was not missed when Jesus said it to the Jews of his time. It says as soon as he said that, they picked up stones to try and stone him. That was blasphemy, claiming to be God. And notice the structure of this last verse is a bit different to all the others. There's no request other other than in the title asking for him to come. And there's no explaining their current situation. It's all just expanding on that title, expanding on the one they're calling to. 
So this verse is making it as clear as possible what all the other verses have been saying. That the Messiah that we have been longing for, that we've been waiting patiently and are suffering for, that he is also God. But not just any God. In the ancient world, it wasn't all that unusual for people to claim to be gods. But here he's attributing Jesus as the God of Israel, and that was unusual. As we just read, in that culture you don't claim to be the God of Israel because it does not go down well. The previous verses were calling for the Messiah with some divine attributes hinted at and what they were asking the Messiah to do for them. This final verse is unashamedly calling for the God who came down in fire at Mount Sinai, who gave the law to Israel, who took Israel as his special possession, who rescued them out of Egypt and through the desert, the God who had been with them all along. That's what this song is calling to. Come, promised one. Come, God of Israel. So this song, it's, it's all calling for the same person. It's just unpacking that information that they knew about the Messiah in baby steps and with different labels. O come, Emmanuel, the promised one who would come, God with us. Come, the rod of Jesse, the descendant that we had lost hope would ever come. Come, the day spring, the light of the world, here since the beginning. Come, the key of David, the promised ruler, full of wisdom, who will judge with righteousness. Come Adonai, Lord of might, the God of Israel from the old times. So they're all different promises of the Messiah that are fulfilled in Jesus, which is summed up perfectly in that title, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, God with us. So it's a bit of a strange Christmas song in the sense that it doesn't even mention the name Jesus. Nothing about that night, you know, being born in a manger or the wise men or shepherds. Nothing about the events on the birth of Jesus. The whole framework for the song is written in the past tense, waiting and expecting the Messiah to come. And I love the, the dichotomy of the song. There's this constant hope, but not just a hope, also rejoicing and knowing that their longing will be answered. And I especially love how that hope and expectation is repeatedly coming from a pretty dark place, their current situation. I find this much easier to relate to than some of those Christmas carols that focus on the night of Jesus' birth. Not that there's anything wrong with those songs, unless they've got bells or kids' choirs. It's not that there's anything wrong with those. It's just, for me, they feel a bit far away, more like a, a fairy tale or something you can't relate to as much. Whereas this song is really easy to relate to. It's a bit of a roller coaster and being stuck in present troubles and things that don't look good and hard to see the hope but it's still calling for that hope that is to come and not just not just in a way asking please come but being assured that rest assured it will come and the music of that song as I mentioned is in a minor key so it's a bit sadder than most of the the usual songs we sing here at church has that sort of feeling of longing and, and incompleteness to it but overall the message of this song is one of hope and assurance that God's promises will come true, and a call to rejoice, to rejoice that Emmanuel, God with us, he will come to us, the one that we're longing for will rescue us. Yes, yeah, so I found it pretty funny looking into that history of this song. So to sum up, we've got a song that's all about hope, and to celebrate the fact that God will come through for us, all written to a depressing tune that was once a funeral procession song. I think it's a good combo. Um, it's a very strange combination.
But yeah, I don't know about you guys, but I, I find that really relatable. And I find it encouraging to see a song of hope and a longing for things to get better and also assurance that things will get better, even though the present doesn't look like it. So yeah, I mean, a cool journey unpacking that song. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that you will come through for us. We thank you that even when it really, really does not look like it, when we can't see any way forward, anything to look forward to, when we're surrounded in darkness and depressing times, we thank you that you have promised that you will come, that you will make things better. And we thank you that you have not left us here on our own. We ask for encouragement and reminders and that you would speak to our hearts and remind us that you are coming and that we're not alone. Give us that hope that makes no sense because we can't find it anywhere that we look anywhere that we're searching we cannot find that hope Lord we pray that you would give that to us Amen